Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We are in the midst of our nine-day spoken word format. We'll go right into Roy Barrel Wine in a, in a series that I don't think we've ever presented before here at JM and the AM, a series entitled The Road to Repentance. Roy Wine actually has a uh, lecture on... Um, on tshuva, he has a lecture on tefillah, and he has a lecture on stucca. And this is the uh, preparatory lecture for us, or I should say series of lectures, as we uh, now find ourselves uh, getting close to the middle of the month of Av. Soon it'll be Elul, and of course, right around the corner, it'll be the high holidays. So Rabbi Barrowine on the topic of the road to repentance here on a Monday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. As you all know, this is uh, Chodesh Elul, uh, the month of uh, preparation, so to speak, for the great uh, Yomim Noroim, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the holiday of Sukkot that appear next month. And uh, I wanted, uh, over these three lectures, to discuss uh, a general uh, understanding. We say uh, in the Tfilot, in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Tshuva Utfilot Utzdaka Mavirin Adroa that there are three concepts that, so to speak, heaven takes into consideration and that have the power to ameliorate, to lessen any negative uh, judgments regarding us as individuals and regarding the Jewish people as a nation, as a whole. So the three are tshuva, which uh, loosely defined means uh, repentance, but we'll try and give a uh, better and more exact definition. And tefillah is prayer, and stoka are acts of charity, of goodness. And that these three uh, concepts have the ability to influence judgment and to uh, render what could be negative into something that's positive. So tonight's lecture is regarding tshuva. To, uh, tshuva is a little like the weather, that everybody talks about it, but no one does anything about it. So I uh, wanted to uh, somehow uh, frame it uh, perhaps a little differently than what we are accustomed to. We all know there is halachic tshuva. The Rambam uh, has a whole uh, section of his great work, the Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Tshuva. Now the first question that arises is, uh, it says in the Torah, Veshavto ad Hashem elokecha. Is that a commandment? to do tshuva, to return to God? Or is that a statement? 
that eventually the Jewish people, you'll return to God. And there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars of Israel as to whether or not tshuva is a mitzvah. Is it one of the 613 mitzvot? Or is it just a state of being? And uh, that all depends on this halachic version of what tshuva is. The Rambam says that the three uh, prerequisites for tshuva are charoto al ha'avar, to regret what was done. In other words, there has to be a recognition that something was done. Most of it's impossible to do tshuva on uh, things that we don't know or that we don't consider to be something that was wrong. And that's why the Talmud says that uh, if it's a sofek avera, if it's an avera that we're in doubt whether we did it or whether it was an avera, that's almost impossible to do tshuva on it. Because I'm, I'm doing tshuva on what? What did I do? I didn't do anything. And uh, most of the time, I shouldn't say most of the time because I don't know that, but many times, a people sublimate in their mind what they did so they don't quite remember. And they certainly don't view it in the way that perhaps others would view it. And therefore, how can you do tshuva on that? Because in my mind, I didn't do anything wrong. So uh, a basic uh, beginning point in the whole concept of tshuva is the recognition that there are things that were wrong that we would like to make them right. Now you hear many people boast that if I have to live my life over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Well, I don't think that's a very healthy attitude. There are a lot of things I would change. Life uh, presents us daily with challenges, and we're not always up to those challenges. We're not always kind. We're not always considerate. We're not always punctual. And we are not always uh, completely observant. So therefore that requires a recognition, a recognition of the fact that we are prone to mistakes and that that's the human condition from time immemorial and to a certain extent we shouldn't be ashamed of it because that's the nature that the Lord has created us. The Rabboni Sholem who created you gave her the power to forget. So then the question is, what do you want to forget? The complaint is, You forgot God who created you. So you forgot the wrong thing. 
But forgetfulness is part of our makeup. So the Rambam says that therefore you have to have a charota. You have to regret what happened. And to regret what happened, we presuppose that you know what happened. And that there is something within you that tells you that what you did was wrong, was not healthy, was not correct. We all know that uh, there are many times in life that we wish we could have the words that we uttered back again. Especially if they're uttered in anger or emotion. But nothing can be retracted. Once it's out there, it's out there. And in today's world where everything is recorded and seen, you know, every step here in Yerushalayim, they're looking at you. So the Rabbon Shalom Kaviyachal also has surveillance cameras. He also hears what you say. So therefore, true regret is the first step in halachic tshuva. Now we're going to talk about a different kind of tshuva in a few minutes. But in halachic tshuva, true regret begins. The second uh, facet of tshuva, therefore, is that the person regretting the past makes a commitment that he will not do it again. We make a commitment that we're not going to repeat past errors. Now the nature of people is to constantly repeat past errors. To a great extent we're all recidivists. We all we do the same crimes over again. Whether we call that addiction or habit but uh, that's our nature and uh, Chazal say that uh, if a person sins the first time he feels sorry about it the second time he is less sorry the third time he doesn't think that he sinned because it becomes habitual it becomes part of us so therefore there has to be a commitment not to repeat it in order for that commitment to be valid people have to do things if a person has a tendency to be a kleptomaniac and steal money he should not apply for a job to be a bank teller (laughs) you have to take defensive measures Defensive measures is always Kabbalah lahabo. And we find the Torah instills within us many defensive measures. The Chazal and their wisdom added many things prohibitions, safeguards, fences, uh, so that we don't get into trouble. And there are people that want to live on the edge. No, I can handle it. It doesn't make any difference. I can handle it. 
that that's not true. 99% of people can't handle it. And if you find yourself in compromising circumstances, you're in trouble. That's the whole, in a miniature way, the whole discussion about smartphones and kosher phones. If you got it on your phone, don't worry. I can handle it. But we find that uh, in so many instances, it really can't be handled. We say in the prayers of Yom Kippur, Omnam Yetzer Solchein Bonu. It's true that our desires dwell within us with such a power that we are unable many times to overcome it. So the only way to overcome it is not to get into the situation. Because by getting into the situation, we doom ourselves to problems that become unavoidable. Now, in our time, uh, the zeitgeist, the uh, prevailing current ideas of society are all against us. Uh, equality of gender. So that flies in the face of reality. But uh, because we are convinced that the ideal of equality is so great and so necessary uh, that uh, we overlook the consequences. We overlook what happens, what kind of a world it is. And the reality of men, the reality of women. So, as we make a commitment not to do it again, uh, we have to be wise enough to realize that we have to stay out of the circumstances. It's, I think it's uh, common knowledge now, just common sense, uh, certainly for rabbis, but I think for anybody, uh, you don't interview a woman alone in your office with nobody else there. Because uh, even if nothing untoward happened, uh, you are exposing yourself to all sorts of difficulties that you cannot control. And then the Rambam finally says the third step is vidui, is to be able to confess with one's own mouth and lips and words what happened. So we, uh, we put our confessions to music. You know, so we sing it. So that makes it nicer for us. <laughs> it alleviates the pain a little. But you have to be able to say it. 
You have to be able to say, I did wrong. And it's very hard to say. People will realize they did wrong. People will commit themselves that they will not do it again. But they cannot bring themselves to verbally admit that somehow they did something wrong. The Gemara says, Ma Bein Shaul David. What's the difference between King Saul, who sinned, and David Amelech, who also sinned? So David Amelech retains his uh, royal status, and not only that, he retains it for all eternity. And he's the hero of the Jewish people. Even though the sin that he committed is, uh, at least from the verses in the Tanakh, a, uh, a major crime. Shaul did not listen to the Navi. The Navi Shmuel told him that uh, you have to... Uh, uh, destroy Amalek and don't take any of the booty and Shaul was unable to withstand the temptation and therefore the kingdom is ripped from him and he and his sons will be killed and there's no dynasty of King Shaul even though Shaul HaMelech was a great tzaddik it says Ben Shono Shaul B'molcha Shaul was one year old when he became the king so the Gemara says that's not accurate what does it mean he was one year old the Gemara says just as a one year old child is guiltless is blameless so was Shaul when he started out he was the greatest uh, tzaddik of his generation. So now what's the difference? Why does heaven consider David and make him the paragon of monarchy in the Jewish world? And why is Shaul treated so harshly? And the Gemara answers simply. When the Novi came, when the Novi Shmuel came to Shaul and he told him, You have sinned, Shaul did not admit it. Shaul said, I did everything that you said. So Shmuel says to him, Then what, what are all these sheep bleeding about? Why do I hear all of this noise? And in fact, the the uh, trop is right? He mimics the sheep. So then Shaul says, "Well, yeah, we kept the sheep because we're going to bring sacrifices to the Lord. Oh, so we have a noble purpose, right? We want to." bring all of these sheep as sacrifices to the Rabboni Shalom the people will realize how we have to serve God and Shmuel naturally is not satisfied with that 
So then Shaul says, Kishamati Bikolom. It was the people's will. I would have done what you wanted, Shmuel, but the people. You know, they, they had a shul meeting and they voted. <laughs> and so Shmuel says to him, listen to me. What you did was wrong. Only then does he say Chotasi. Only then does he say, I have sinned. So it takes this whole process for him to utter the word, this is a great man. So one of the greatest men in Jewish history. But he can't admit it. Can't say it. Dovr Melech, on the other hand, the moment the prophet Nosson comes to him and gives him the parable about the rich man with his sheep and the poor man and uh, David says well that such a man should be condemned and the Navi says Atta, you are the man he immediately says yes I sinned I realize I sinned I admit it so the ability to do penance by admitting is one of the great characteristics of tshuva and according to the Rambam it is a necessary characteristic and that's why on Yom Kippur we have uh, all of the alchets that we recite nine times because we're admitting it so we should concentrate when we say it that we really mean it because then that's how tshuva can change the gzera can ameliorate any harsh judgment against us no no aside from this halachic view of tshuva there is a, a philosophical view as well that I want to share with you Tshuva begins with the original sin, with Aramarisha. The original human being in the story of Adam and Chava and Ganein, in the Garden of Eden. Now, a person sins, most people do not sin blatantly, they cover it up. In fact, we are well aware the uh, mantra, which is true, that many times the cover-up is worse than the crime. Because people go to ingenious lengths, falsify documents, commit perjury, suborn other witnesses. all in order to cover it up so in the story of Adam in uh, Gan Eden the Torah tells us they knew that they were now naked 
the Rashi points out that they were naked of mitzvahs. They were, they had lost, it lost the aura of holiness. So what happens is that they hide. Autumn hides in the garden. So it's like uh, little children at play, if you watch them, you know, hide, go seek. So if I can't find a good place to hide, I just cover my eyes as though I, I hid. So he's hiding from God. It's the cover-up. So the Torah teaches us that he hears a voice emanating from heaven, so to speak, that says, Ayeka, where are you? So the simple explanation is he's hiding. So then we ask, where are you? Because I want to find you. But no one can hide from God. So the question is much deeper. Ayeko, where are you now? Now that you sinned. Now that you ate from the fruit of the Eitzadas. Now that you realize the consequences. So now what? Ayeko, where are you? And that is a question that reverberates over and over again in Jewish history and in the individual life of a person. Now we could ask that today. Ask the Jewish world, Ayeko, so where are you now? After the Holocaust, after the creation of the State of Israel, after the fall of communism, after all of the nonsense that's going on, where are you now? What are you now? I'm a progressive socialist. Is that what you are? Ayeko, where are you? So the first step in tshuva, in this philosophical tshuva, is to be able to identify where I'm at. So I have to identify where I am at relative to previous generations. And I always uh, mention that uh, my Rebbe in the yeshiva used to say, he said it in my generation, I don't know if it's true any longer, but in my generation it was, he used to say that if your grandparents and your grandchildren are both proud of you, then you're probably all right. Because there's a continuity. So where am I? I'm where my Zeta was. Where, where, you know, that's where I'm at. But if uh, that doesn't exist, when you ask Ayeko and nobody can answer, so then that is a difficult, difficult situation. That precludes any type of tshuva, any type of improvement, because you don't know where you're at. I mean, one of the great inventions in our time is ways. Right? So no one asks directions anymore. You just type in, you know, and you have this marvelous thing that tells you where you're at. So I have often thought how I could 
create a spiritual ways. Because I know what I would like to be, and I know I will. I would like to get there, but I I don't know where I'm at. Right, my GPS is not working. So that is an enormous challenge. And that's a national challenge to the Jewish people. And it's a national challenge to our state here in Israel. Where are we? And that's part of the whole discussion that goes on. Jewish democracy or democratic Jewish state, which is more, which is less. And uh, whether we should have a national law, everybody's equal, what, the the whole thing is Ayeka. Where are you? And especially after what we have undergone over the past century, so one would think that we would have a glimmer of wisdom. We would have some understanding, so to speak, of where we can go, of what we want to be. You know, the the pilot got on the intercom in the uh, airplane and he said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that we're 10 minutes ahead of schedule. The bad news is that I have no idea where we're at. <laughs> so that's pretty much a description of our time. We're 10 minutes ahead of schedule. Everything is going great. We got an economy, we got an army, we got this. That's wonderful. It's a, who could have imagined this 75 years ago? The only thing is we don't know where we're at. And until somehow that problem is resolved, uh, these issues will continue to plague us and will continue to confuse us. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says as follows. The Gemara asks a very good question. How could it be that in first temple times, when you had prophets, Yeshaya, Yirmiya, Yechezkel, Zcharia, who always preached to the Jewish people, that they should repent, warn them of the consequences of not repenting. How could it be that people turned a deaf ear? That people didn't uh, respond as they should have. That's the question the Gemara and the Gemara and Chalik in the last chapter of Sanhedrin. So the more gives a few answers, all of which are relevant to us. One answer is, well, we don't see any reward in repentance. We don't see any advantage. The same thing happens to good people, it happens to bad people. The famous... Uh, problem of Tzadik Veralo, Veroshev Etoglo, 
we don't see that goodness is rewarded we don't see that there's any benefit in uh, listening to the Novi in fact we see just the opposite that we live in a cruel world and that uh, because of that uh, you have to be a hard person and we're not interested in repentance it doesn't pay that's what they answered him it doesn't pay so you can say as we do well maybe it doesn't pay in this world but it will pay in the next world or you can say it doesn't pay temporarily but over the long run of history it will pay but people don't think that way that's a level of sophistication that most people do not achieve and are unable to deal with and therefore those generations continue to worship idols and continue their evil behavior because they said it doesn't pay to do differently and uh, therefore they didn't do tshuva so that's one great obstacle to tshuva is the fact that we don't see any immediate rewards and in a world that operates on the concept of reward I work hard I make more money I take care of myself I'm healthy etc etc so uh, if we're unable to see the reward so then so to speak it doesn't pay that's one answer that was given and that certainly is an answer in our time too the Gemara says uh, what good are the students of Torah what do they do for us so that's an old question it didn't start now it's not a question of the Choka Gius now it's an old question what good is it so the Gemara says to get past that you have to realize that we are returning to God we have to bypass the problem that we see we have to say that somehow uh, that's not the issue the issue is what about our closeness to the Rabboni Shalom and it could be that sometimes that closeness exists uh, more in times of trouble than in times of good oftentimes people find their souls 
in times of tragedy that they don't find it in times of goodness then there's a closeness somehow and uh, that's uh, the the Gemara quotes there the uh, famous uh, discussion between the Novi Yecheskel and the elders of Israel at the end of uh, first temple times that they came and they said uh, you know we quit we're not we're not interested and the Novi said uh, God says you're never going to escape me you're never going to escape me so I'll bring troubles on you and troubles you'll uh, you'll find me you'll have no other recourse now troubles they have a double effect some people drive it drives them further away and some people it brings them close without going into the uh, issue uh, at length uh, but we see that from the Holocaust that there were people who came out who had lost all of their faith and didn't want to have anything to do with anything and there were others whose uh, faith was renewed so that's an individual choice but it's also a national choice for us so therefore uh, that prevented them from doing tshuva the other thing that prevents them from doing another thing not the other another thing is that uh, so to speak the people who represent God and Torah are imperfect have weaknesses there's a lot of hypocrisy in the world and therefore people say why should I even bother look at this and this person and look what he does look how he behaves so how can you tell me that this is going to be a good thing it's uh, one of the uh, lines that I've always said is that one should be wise enough not to confuse Jews with Judaism Jews are one thing they are imperfect but Judaism the Torah itself is not to be discarded because of that but it certainly provides a uh, strong obstacle uh, to tshuva because of the fact that how can I reconcile the behavior of some with uh, Torah values and a Torah way of life so national tshuva becomes a very difficult thing and it especially is difficult when the rest of the world everyone else is going in a different direction Uh, to such an extent that uh, one cannot even speak about certain issues today because of the uh, 
environment that exists can't talk about it you just have to keep quiet so they, all of that stands in the way of tshuva and uh, therefore it requires a national will which is often hard to achieve uh, to be able to overcome that now we had a national will at Maimed Har Sinai when the Jewish people were at Sinai they said Nasev and Ishma we're going to accept the Torah so that was a national will when the Jewish people came into Eretz Israel that was a national will when Jewish people left Egypt those that left Egypt that was the national will when they built the Beit HaMikdash that was the national will but there are times when there is no national will when the nation is so divided that it has no national will when you look at the one would think that uh, the state of Israel is entitled to the national will of the Jewish people with all of the uh, problems and detractions on the whole it's a great thing that has happened to us and a great accomplishment and no one no, it's, it's the miracle of the really of the ages nobody has ever done such a thing nobody ever came back nobody ever rebuilt themselves nobody ever created a, a language that was uh, not spoken for millennia and made it a uh, common language no one did any of these things but we did it right the Lord did it for us it's all here but there's no national will to support it it's eroded all over the world uh, the, in fact the uh, the leaders of uh, anti-Israel are basically Jews more than anyone else so how shall we therefore create this national will and that's the idea of tshuva of hashivenu Hashem Eilechav and hashuva. now that is a debate between God and between the Jewish people God says to us Shuva Eli you come back to me first and then I will return to you I'll help create that national will I'll help inspire you we say God you take us back first then we will do tshuva so that's a tough debate right we all know that when there's a great argument between people who really love each other the question is who says first I'm sorry who is willing to uh, break the ice so to speak so we say you know God it's up to you you do it 
and the Rebbe Shalom Kaviyochel says, it's up to you, you do it. So it's a standoff. And when it's a standoff, so then it doesn't happen. We say, Chadesh Yomeinu Kikedem. Renew our days as days of old. What days of old are we talking about? So the Mephorshim explained that the days of old are when we had national will. It's Maimon Harsinai, it's Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, it's entering Eretz Yitzhiyah, it's building the Beis Hamikdash. That's Chadesh Yomeinu Kikedem. We had a national will to do these things. But in order to accomplish that, we have to take our own individual uh, feelings, opinions, and so to speak, sublimate them to create a national will because no two people are going to see it the same way. And that becomes the challenge of national tshuva. Rav Cook in his uh, many, many works that speaks about uh, that the uh, return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, which began at the end of the 19th century, or even at the beginning of the 19th century, and which uh, continued in the 20th century, and which has built the state of Israel as we know it, and we have this population that we never dreamt of having. So he says that the physical return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is the beginning of the spiritual return. It's part of the process of tshuva. And the truth of the matter is, you can always consider it this way, I think it's valid, Everyone that lives here is voting by one's presence that uh, the Jewish people are not only here, but are going to be here. Jewish life uh, is eternal, and the God of Israel is with us, because otherwise everybody can be in San Diego. You you know, it's not, take a plane and go. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who have done so. That's not to criticize the individuals, because everybody has their reasons. And many of the reasons are valid. And many of the reasons are necessary. You cannot uh, ignore uh, the millions of Jews that live outside of us. But basically being here is a vote of tshuva. It's a vote of national will. Just as having children is a vote of national will. Because why should one bring children into a world where one feels that there is no future? That there is no uh, purpose? We say, Shalom Nele La Behola. Shalom Nigala Rik, Shalom Nele La Behola. You should never have the feeling that we are working for nothing. 
that it doesn't mean anything and that we bring children into the world also for nothingness for destruction and Chazal tell us uh, the famous story regarding Moshe himself that Moshe's uh, parents didn't want to have children anymore because uh, what's the use the uh, Egyptians are going to uh, mortar them into the bricks Miriam convinces them otherwise but that's the vote of confidence that's the statement of tshuva of the national tshuva of the Jewish people so it's a process just as the individual it's a process nationally it's also a process so nationally also you have to have charota alovar you have to regret what happened so you have to know what happened you have to know what mistakes and why should we make them over again why should uh, the mistakes that were made in Europe in the 19th century or in Russia in the 20th century we have literally tens of millions of people who have Jewish some sort of Jewish genetic composition but are not Jews and in fact many times they're enemies of the Jews so you saw what so to speak the enlightenment brought to us you saw what pursuing these ideas and ideals created so why should you do it again but we are doing it again over and over and over again it's as though uh, we have learned nothing and then you need commitment for the future commitment as we pointed out has many problems to it it's a sacrifice that is demanded of us it's not easy it's we are not the you know we are not people that just can get up at a revival meeting and say I believe and everything is good that doesn't work by us so that is also required and we have to express it we have to be able to say it we have to be able to deliver the message Uh, to ourselves and to our generations so that's the task that stands before us and I think that that's what it means we see in front of us is that American Jewry is going to disappear God forbid is that it's assimilated it's gone I I just uh, was in Russia for a week and so in Russia uh, there maybe are 300,000 Jews left that are Jews but there's like a million and a half people that are half Jews, quarter Jews, third Jews maybe Jews, wannabe Jews 
It's all doomed. It's tragic beyond words. So that requires uh, the wisdom of tshuva to be able to uh, somehow salvage what we can salvage. So that's the Ruach Hagzeira. That's the evil decree that is upon us. That if we do nothing, then uh, all of this is going to somehow not turn out well for us. But if we do something, if we regret and we repent and we recognize and we identify and we remain firm and we commit ourselves to better things and that we're willing to express it so then uh, then the decree is certainly ameliorated it's certainly made better it certainly gives us a chance for great things for great dreams for the ability to rise above all of these obstacles and so my friends in the great and good year that is coming upon us as we prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, let us renew our power of tshuva and let us say that we will be willing to be forthcoming in coming closer to the Rabboni Shalom, in dealing with him, in understanding our role and our mission. And with it, we'll be blessed with a great and good year. Lonu l'chol Yisrael. Amen. Rabbi Beryl Wine, the, uh, the lecture is entitled Tshuva, part of Tshuva Tefillah Tzedakah. We'll, of course, get the Tefillah in hour number two. The series is entitled The Road to Repentance, a brilliant series um, by Beryl Wine. And, uh, of course, as we now are in the month of Av and soon will be in Elul and then the uh, High Holidays, it is a perfect time. I mean, it, it's always a perfect time, frankly. Uh, it's always a perfect time to uh, reflect on our um, obligations regarding repentance. But it's certainly a good time to... Uh, enjoy the um, incredible uh, insight and the remarkable recommendations that Rabbi Wine makes in these brilliant lectures. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. And, of course, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We are keeping somewhat of a close eye and ear on what's going on in Jerusalem after a weekend of protests to a degree that uh, I don't even think we've seen protests to the degree that we've seen over the last couple of days in Israel, even o- over all these 26, 27, 28 consecutive weeks of protests. Um, but we are keeping a close eye on when this vote is actually going to happen in the Knesset. To, to boil it down, uh, they're trying to um, vote, they're, they're going to likely vote on a measure that would slightly or largely, depending on your political perspective, uh, take away some of the power from the Supreme Court and move some of that power 
uh, to the legislative or executive branch, I should say, in Israel. So that's what it boils down to. The reasonableness clause, reasonableness law is what's going to be voted on. And uh, we have uh, conflicting... We have conflicting um, guesses in terms of when this vote's going to take place. I've heard everything from a couple hours from now uh, to the middle of the night when the vote's actually going to be taking place because obviously the debate continues in the Knesset. So we'll see what happens. We'll hear the news at the top of the hour in Hebrew. We'll keep a close eye on what's happening in, uh, in general uh, in terms of news coming out of Israel. And uh, we shall see. We shall see what the vote brings and what the aftermath brings because um, if, in fact, the opposition does boycott the entire vote, uh, I'd have to imagine that, there, that, that, it will, that things will end up quite differently than if they do not boycott and actually you know, voice their opposition to the, uh, to the new law. But again, what do I know? So <laughs> we'll keep a close eye on what's happening in Israel and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSNF. Golly, it's on the background. There are news from Israel coming up. It is the 24th day of July and day number six in the month of Menachem Av. It's a Monday at JM in the AM. Golly, it's Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast is next. Boker Tov from JM in the AM. וליצל מירושלים השעה שתיים, שלום רב, באולפן רן יבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. הכנסת מקיימת כעת את מרתון ההצבעות האחרון על החוק לצמצום עילת הסבירות. קוראים בקואליציה עדיין דוחפים לריכוך חד צדדי של החוק. במליאת הכנסת מדווח כתב התחום הפוליטי שחר גליק. הכנסת הצביעה על כ-60 הסתייגויות מתוך 140, ההצבעה צפויה להימשך עוד כשלוש שעות. תוך כדי ההצבעות נתניהו הסתודד במליאה עם שותפיו והעלו את האפשרות לריכוך חד צדדי. ראש הממשלה יצא לשיחה עם השר דרעי בפרסה שמאחורי מליאת הכנסת. כרגע על הפרק ריכוך קל מאוד והתחייבות להפסיק את החקיקה הנוספת לתקופה של מספר חודשים, עדיין לא ברור כמה. השר בן גביר הודיע על התנגדותו הנחרצת לפשרה וכתב, לצערנו חלקים בקואליציה מנהלים משא ומתן עם עצמם. ושוקרים להגיע לפשרה שתעקר את החוק, כל פשרה בהצבעות על חוק הסבירות תהיה חרפה לימין כולו, כך בן גביר. ועוד לפני ההצבעה, יושב ראש האופוזיציה לפיד הצהיר על כישלון המשא ומתן ואמר אי אפשר להגיע עם הממשלה להסכמות. בשבועות האחרונים, ועוד יותר מזה, ב-48 השעות האחרונות עשינו כל מאמץ להגיע להסכמות רחבות, אבל היו לנו תנאים, והתנאי המרכזי היה לשמור על הדמוקרטיה הישראלית. עם הממשלה הזו אי אפשר להגיע להסכמות ששומרות על הדמוקרטיה הישראלית, ולפיכך אין דרך להמשיך להתנהל מולם. בשר המשפטים לוין אמר במליאה, אני מקווה שנדע לנצל את הפגרה הקרובה לשיחות כדי להשיג הסכמה על המשך החקיקה. אנחנו הולכים בדרך זהירה מאוד. לא מבטלים את עילת הסבירות, אלא מצמצמים את השימוש בה. אני גם מקווה שנדע לנצל את חודשי פגרת הכנסת כדי לשבת לשיחות, כדי להשיג הסכמה באשר למכלול מרכיבי הרפורמה. ומחוץ לכנסת עימותים בין מפגינים לשוטרים. מפגינים פרצו מחסומים והגיעו לגן הוורדים שמול המשכן. בתוך כך הבורסה עברה לירידות חדות והשקל נחלש אחרי שפוצצו השיחות, מדווח כתבנו לענייני כלכלה ישראל פישר. 
הבורסה בתל אביב עברה לירידות שערים של כאחוז מיד עם הדיווח על פיצוץ השיחות לפשרה, אחרי שבשעות הבוקר נרשמו עליות שערים. ההתפתחויות הפוליטיות משפיעות גם על המסחר במטבע חוץ. בשעות הבוקר השקל התחזק בחדות לעומת הדולר והאירו, אך עכשיו הדולר עולה בשתי עשיריות האחוז לעומת השקל, והאירו נסחר תמורת ארבעה שקלים ושתי אגורות, כשמוקדם יותר נסחר האירו ברמות שפל של שלושה שבועות. יושב ראש ההסתדרות ארנון בר דוד ויושב ראש נשיאות המגזר העסקי דובי אמיתי בשיחות ומסרו חברי הכנסת מכל סיעות הבית מפקירים ברגעים אלה את כלל אזרחי ישראל. החברה הישראלית קורסת ומפולגת. אנו קוראים לכל הצדדים, התעשתו למען עתיד החברה הישראלית. מזג האוויר חם מאוד בחוץ. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. discussing a whole bunch of things regarding today's vote. Um, as the government reaches the end of a marathon debate before the third and final vote on the reasonableness standard bill scheduled to take place on Monday afternoon, protests outside the Knesset and across Israel continue to heat up, so the protests are still going pretty strong. Um, what else do we have here? Finance Minister Smotrich tried to arrange a last-minute compromise during the reasonableness clause vote on Monday. He requested to postpone legislation for at least six months. It was rejected by Justice Minister Levin and National Security Minister Ben Gvir. Um, what else do we have here? The session, as the Knesset has begun to vote on the reasonableness clause, the session will include 140 votes, five of which... will be by name, meaning I'm assuming each member of the Knesset will have to um, reveal their vote. And the opposition members are pledged to boycott the final vote. So I guess of these 140 votes going on, the final one is the one that the opposition is planning on boycotting. And um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has returned to the Knesset after his release from the hospital. Many of you probably saw and heard the news over the weekend that he is uh, now... with a pacemaker um, helping his heart along. Uh, that was a development that happened over the weekend. Um, all right, JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine and his lectures continue to be the uh, centerpiece of our, oh, why did I do that? Of our nine days programming. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. Again, that's 1-800-499-WEIN. We are featuring the uh, series uh, from Rabbi Wine on the road to repentance. Again, the series is entitled The Road to Repentance. We're up to Tzfilah, Tshuva, Tzfilah, and Stucco. We're up to Tzfilah. We'll get to that in a moment. Oh, by the way, I want to wish a happy birthday to Yaakov Arbach. Yaakov Arbach, one of our dedicated listeners in our audience, to say the least. He is really a dedicated listener. Uh, Yaakov, our dear friend, is celebrating a birthday today. I believe it's 34, if I'm not mistaken. Yaakov Arbach is celebrating a birthday today. And we say mazal tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. Also, I got a, uh, 
I got a note from one of our listeners overnight. Feel free to comment on the app, by the way. Go to the NSN, Not Home Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. I got a note from one of our listeners overnight that I wanted to actually open up and read on the air. Um, let's see if I could find it. This is a, uh, uh, here it is. This was written yesterday by listener Sarah. And it says, hi, Nahum. Tomorrow is your favorite listener's birthday. Yes, our Ema listener, Sina. <laughs> to the best Ema Schwiger and bubs that ever was on her special birthday day. We are so privileged to be able to learn from your ways and follow in the path that you and Abba, Allah Shalom, have set us on. Our children and grandchildren are fortunate to have a bubby that's always available no matter what and that has a special relationship with each one of them. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu grant you many more happy, healthy, and nachas-filled and nachos-filled years to enjoy with your beautiful family. Admeyev Estrim Shana, love always your biggest fans, Shoshana, Sarah, and Sippy. So a very, very special happy birthday to listener Sina. How amazing is that from all of us here at JM in the AM? And that was really nice to uh, see that note overnight and to be able to share that with everybody. Uh, Hask Experience Day is this coming Sunday. Those of you who've never visited Camp Hask, Sunday's an amazing opportunity uh, to come and see what uh, that magical place is all about. There'll be a live concert with Joey Newcomb, Baruch Levine, Moshe Auslander, Mendy Warch. It's all Sunday, Shabbos Nachamu weekend, starting at 10 a.m. and going until 2 p.m. So again, Hask Experience Day is this Sunday. Try your hardest to be part of it. Also, Tisha B'Av is this coming Thursday. There will be the 46th Annual Mincha and Speakers Program. It's all happening via Zoom this year instead of at the Isaiah Wall. At 145, there'll be Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale and plenty of guest speakers. Those of you who want the Zoom meeting ID, dial-in number, etc., either contact me, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, again, Nahum at NahumSiegel.com, or uh, speak with Glenn uh, Glenn Richter at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. All right, so it's time for our next lecture. Again, Rabbi Wine's lecture is at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. This is the lecture from the Tshuva Tfilat Stucca uh, trio. This is the one on Tfila at JM in the AM. In the... Uh Tfilot of uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and so we recite with great fervor that Utshuva, Utfila, Utstoka, Ma'virinus Roag Zera. That there are three elements that can influence uh, and even change decrees that were made in heaven and do so on a beneficial basis. Now, tefillah is one of them. But tefillah, as we understand it, prayer uh, is a uh, revolutionary concept in human thought. 
and it really is a Jewish invention the idea that one can pray to heaven and through the prayer uh, the decisions of heaven can be influenced and even rescinded and uh, that idea is if you'll uh, think about it for a minute uh, truly revolutionary radical because if heaven made up its mind so to speak so then how can it be changed and what power do human beings have to change it and why is prayer that power so I want to speak to you tonight about this idea the concept of prayer feel as we uh, know it and associate with it uh, has halachic consequences an entire section in the Shulchan Aruch the Hilchas Tefillah the laws regarding prayer a prayer as we have it is formalized it's instituted its text is set that's one aspect of prayer but the concept of prayer uh, is itself something that is worthy of understanding and of appreciation so for instance in the Torah we do not find that Adam Arishon, original man prayed to God he had conversations with God however we will understand that there's some sort of communication but there's no concept of prayer and uh, when Cain uh, is uh, found to be guilty of murder of his brother Hevel uh, so again he has a conversation he doesn't pray to God he just says your judgment is unfair my sin is greater than I can bear anybody that finds me will kill me because they'll say I'm the murderer and therefore they will avenge the murder but he's not praying to God in the sense that we appreciate prayer Noah when he is told that the world will be destroyed the uh, Torah makes uh, almost no comment Noah doesn't say anything he doesn't seem to uh, attempt to ameliorate the decree he's building the ark he tells the people that terrible things are going to happen the disaster will befall mankind but he doesn't appeal to God to change his mind he doesn't say uh, don't do it in the ancient world really till our time almost a prayer I'm sorry service to God's to the Avodah to the gods that existed in the world always was done through animal sacrifice 
and many times through human sacrifice. And that was the concept of serving God. So we were appeasing God. You were treating God like a, a judge who could be bribed. And uh, there were various ways of bribing him. And that was the concept of uh, sacrifice. And that's what, what the Gemara means when it says that in the time of the Ovos, Bomos, private altars for sacrifices were acceptable and were the norm, but that for later generations, that was no longer the case. That's not, because that was the mentality of the generation. The mentality was that you have to appease the God. And in the pagan world, the gods were uh, just as evil as the human beings. So therefore, if you're talking about uh, gods that uh, are uh, adulterers, murderers, thieves, so naturally uh, you can corrupt them too. That follows logically. Because that's true for human beings. And so gods can be blackmailed. Now that primitive idea, which again I want to emphasize still exists in our world today in various forms, uh, is the dividing line between our father Avraham and what went before him. It's not only that Abraham is a monotheist. It's not only the one that he says that uh, no graven images have any powers and that there are not a plethora of gods, but there's only one universal creator. But Abraham takes it upon himself to state that somehow a human being can, by the process of prayer, of speaking, somehow change and influence the decisions of heaven. And we find that by the story of Avraham and Zdom. God says uh, to Avram, I'm going to destroy Zdom. The sins of Zdom and Amora are so great that uh, I can bear it no longer. Just as he told Noah, the sins of that generation are so great. I'm bringing the flood on them. So now he says to Avram, I'm going to destroy Zdom. So where Noah was quiet, Noah accepted, you know, if God said he's going to do it, then he's going to do it. So to speak, who might argue with God? Avram uh, prays to God. 
And he argues with him. He says, well, maybe, uh, you know, uh, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And God agrees. God did not start out that if there are 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, I won't do it. He said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to destroy all of them. Shavrohom is the one that creates this concept of the power of prayer. That prayer, and prayer is, in terms of Avraham, the ability to argue with God, so to speak. The ability to say to God, we are human beings. As human beings, what you do reflects upon you, so to speak. Now, it could be that you don't care about that. But we who represent you in this world, we have to care about it. And therefore, Avram says, The judge of the world, I'm proclaiming that there's one God and he's just and he judges the world and he's merciful and everything. And now you're going to do this, you're not going to do what's fair. Maybe there'll be 10 good people. And heaven agrees with him. Heaven says, okay, Avram, if you feel that way, so we'll, uh, we'll accommodate you. The tragedy naturally is that there are not ten good people. I always mention uh, that the stone was destroyed not because it had three million evil people, it was destroyed because it didn't have ten good people. Which is something that we should think of. My job is to be a good person. Certainly there's a lot of evil in the world. Certainly there's a lot of mistakes, a lot of negativism. You you can't sell newspapers by being a good person. Nobody writes an article about you. Nobody writes an article and says, so-and-so, a member of Knesset, has never been corrupt. (laughs) Maybe there isn't such a creature, but... I don't believe that. I believe that there are. But that doesn't make news. What makes news is the member of Knesset got a job for his wife with this and this company and then they passed the law. But Avram Avinu says to God, You have to so to speak, take into account how it's going to resonate amongst us poor humans. And we'll see in a few minutes that that is Moshe Rabbeinu's argument as well. So we have the first instance of prayer. But it's prayer on behalf of someone else, not prayer on behalf of the person who is praying. Avram is praying on behalf of someone else, on behalf of, of cities, of civilizations. He's not praying on his own behalf. And uh, we never find uh, Avram Avinu praying for his own welfare. 
when uh, when he is all alone, he says, "Lu Yishmoel Yichelifonecha." It's enough. I have Yishmoel. Right? If I can't do better, I can't do better. Avram has now. Avram is tested, as we're going to read on Rosh Hashanah. He's tested by the Akedah. Yitzchak is brought on the altar, which is the standard way in the generation of Avram to worship a god. So you kill a child. That's the greatest sacrifice, and that appeases the god. And if the god is appeased, then we can keep on going. And so he uh, brings Yitzchak up on the altar and the angel stops him. And that's the introduction into civilization of the Jewish idea that gods are not appeased by human sacrifice. And uh, we will say that great Pesach in uh, our prayers on Yom Kippur, Achofots, Echfots, Bemos, Ames. Does God want death in the world? God only wants you should return to Him and you live. That's the God that we see. We don't see the, uh, the God that you have to sacrifice children to. So now Yitzchak marries Rivka. Now it's, uh, you have to always remember that our Ovos and Imos did not have easy lives. One would have thought since they are such great people and such holy people. So, uh, you know, they would have, uh, they would have good lives. And yet when we read in Chumash Bracious of their lives, it's almost frightening in the difficulties and tragedies that they encounter. And when the one time Yaakov Avinu, Vayeshev Yaakov, Bikeshweshe he wanted to, you know, live in his condo. The Rabbani Shalom said, what is that? It's not enough for tzaddikim. The spiritual world, he wants this one too. Which is an implicit criticism. So Yitzchak marries Rivka and he loves her. It says, and they have this marriage but she is a barren woman and he does not resort to the same tactics that his father did in taking Hogar as a second wife in the family so uh, the dynasty is over so here we encounter for the first time personal prayer that a person prays for his or her own welfare, for his or her own future. 
and desire. So it says, Vayetar Yitzchok, Yitzchok prays to God, facing his wife, who is also, Rivka also prays. So that's the first time that we see prayer for oneself, that, so to speak, we appeal to God on personal matters. Because many times people uh, would think, you know, that God is busy with all sorts of great things. You know, he's got to run the whole universe. He's got to take care of Trump and everything else. So he has no time for me. Because, you know, I, uh, I'm not important. J.M. in the A.M. or I barrel wine with a... Uh Fascinating lecture on the topic of tefillah from the series entitled The Road to Repentance here at JM in the AM. It is a Monday morning, 24th day of July. Happy birthday, Yaakov Auerbach, the sixth day in the month of Menachem Av as we get closer and closer to the observance of Tisha B'Av, Wednesday night and Thursday. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN. Nahum Siegel Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. Listener Cena, supposedly, based on what we read earlier, Listener Cena is celebrating a birthday today, so we're going to make sure to wish her a very happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. Hask Experience Day this coming Sunday, keep that in mind. In Israel, they are in the midst of the Knesset session the vote on the reasonableness clause, which has been, how do I even put it? It's been a very um, active electorate that has weighed in on this reasonableness clause over the last few days. That's an understatement. Lots of rallies and demonstrations in Israel, as many of you are familiar with. Um... See what happens. The Prime Minister is uh, in the Knesset. He has been released from the hospital. You probably saw over the weekend that he was hospitalized and a pacemaker was put into his uh, heart to help him out in that area. Uh, Mayor Me Lim is happening at 9 a.m. Eastern Time in memory of Mayor Weingarten. Rabbi Benji Kramer has a fascinating segment which sheds light on a Hebrew word or phrase. And today the word is... Churban and Cherev. After all, we're coming up to that time where we commemorate the Churban, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. He'll discuss Churban, Cherev coming up at 9 a.m. Eastern Time right here at um, the Nahum Siegel Network. Um, we go back to our regular format, by the way, on Friday morning. Uh, yeah, we'll go back to our regular format Friday morning. and We will announce exactly when the Arab Shabbos show will air. Obviously, it won't be on on Tisha B'Av, uh, Thursday night at 7 o'clock, but we will be airing a brand-new Arab Shabbos show for Arab Shabbos Nachamu, brilliantly curated by um, by Mark Zamek. And we'll have that for you coming up. Uh, again, as we said, as we, get, as we get closer to the end of the week, we'll let you know exactly when we go, we'll be airing the Arab Shabbos show. 
Uh, Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zevin of Asavalevi, and Zechonishmas Esther Basavis of Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning chizuk. Good morning. We learn in the Talmud Yerushalmi that there were several things that were decreed by the Chachamim, by the great sages, so that we should always remember the Chorban Beis Hamikdash. It should be a reminder that we continuously need to mourn and to miss the Beis Hamikdash. Our Aloha tells us that they were gozer. A person was not allowed to wear the special crown that was made for Chassanim, for the groom. That crown was made of various materials. In the later days, it was made out of an olive branch. So, because it says, Nafla Ateras Roshenu, the crown of our heads has fallen, speaking about the Beis Amikdash, the Talmud tells us, Eluhein Ataras Chasonim. These were the special crowns that the Chasonim used to wear on the day of their wedding. What happened was that all the people would listen. However, there was one, Rebbe Yirmiya, that for whatever reason it was, he did not listen to the Gezerah. He didn't listen to this particular decree of the Chachamim, and he wore the crown. However, when Shmuel heard of this, he said it would have been better for him had he been beheaded and not done this, not worn the crown. And that's what it means, Kishkoga Hayotza, like the mistake that went out, Mipiashalit, from the mouth of the ruler. What it means is that sometimes the ruler could give a decree. He didn't mean to do it. It was a mistake, Belita Saper. But once it came out, they had to follow it. And so too, when Shmuel said this, it was already like a mistake that came out from the mouth of the ruler. On that day, Rebirmia died. The Medrash and Echa Rabbah tells us that from here, we can see the extent to which a person has to appreciate the loss of the Beis Amikdosh. Even wearing the crown of branches on the happiest day of a person's life is not acceptable when there is a minig to remember the Beis Amikdosh. As we all know, that at every chuppah, they put a little bit of ash on the head of the chassan. At every chuppah, the chassan breaks a glass. If I do not remember Yerushalayim at the time of my greatest joy. We understand that each and every day, we remember the Beis Hamikdosh, and we pray that speedily in our days, May we see the arrival of Mashiach in the building of the third and final Beis Hamikdash. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Lots of developments in Israel. <laughs> there are now some strikes being threatened uh, by large organizations within Israel in light of the vote that's taking place right now. There's also a concerted effort by some to postpone this vote, um, to delay it now at this point because of the threats of uh, of strikes, etc. It is uh, it's somewhat difficult to to understand, but this is the gist of what's going on.
in Israel at this point. Monday morning broadcast, JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine, on the topic of tefillah. You're listening to JM in the AM. He wanted to, you know, live in his condo. The Rabboni Shalom said, what is that? It's not enough for tzaddikim. The spiritual world, he wants this one too. Which is an implicit criticism. So Yitzchak marries Rivka, and he loves her. It says, and they have this marriage, but she is a barren woman. And he does not resort to the same tactics that his father did in taking Hogar as a second wife in the family so uh, the dynasty is over so here we encounter for the first time personal prayer that a person prays for his or her own welfare for his or her own future and desire so it says, Vayetar Yitzchok. Yitzchok prays to God, facing his wife, who is also, Rivka also prays. So that's the first time that we see prayer for oneself, that, so to speak, we appeal to God on personal matters. Because many times people uh, would think, you know, that God is busy with all sorts of great things. You know, he's got to run the whole universe. He's got to take care of Trump and everything else. So he has no time for me. Because, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm not important. So one of the great messages of Judaism through this idea of prayer is that I am important and if I want something I have to ask for it there's no guarantee that I'll get it but I certainly should ask for it you all know the story about the man that worked for a company for 50 years and he was a a very, very proficient worker, salesman, etc. And he never got a raise. And when he retired, he went into the boss and he said, you know, how come I never got a raise? And he said, you never asked for one. If you don't ask, you don't get. So Yitzhak and Rivka ask. And the Rabboni Shalom hears their prayer and answers it. Now, the rabbis say, the Medrash points out, that the birth of the twins is miraculous because uh, when Sora had Yitzchak biologically and physically, she could not conceive. And when Rivka had 
Yaakov and Esau also biologically and physically she would be unable to conceive that would be the medical chart on it but the Lord hearkens to their prayer and she gives birth okay so next we have Yaakov now Yaakov elevates the idea of prayer even further because Yaakov uh, makes so to speak a uh, pact a deal with the Rabboni Shalom and with God if God will be with me and he's going to watch over me and he's going to take care of me and I'll come back home near to Israel so even as this rock now is a monument it's just a dead piece of rock will be the house of God so prayer now becomes a matter of negotiation so to speak you do something for me I'll do something for you it's not, not so by, by Yitzchok and Avram prayer was I can't do anything for you so I'm asking only that you do me a favor I don't guarantee anything for you Yaakov ups the ante he says uh, you know we'll, we'll make a, a good arrangement you'll take care of me I'll take care of you which is an element of prayer because prayer requires a commitment from the person who is praying otherwise it's of no value and therefore uh, Yaakov Avinu has this condition which he fulfills and his prayers are answered he escapes from love and he comes back and got the, uh, the 12 tribes so now the uh, Torah allows us to descend into slavery in Egypt we do not find in the Torah anyone that prayed over that slavery even Moshe Rabbeinu who came to uh, draw the Jewish people out of slavery didn't pray he just said to God whatever you tell me to do I'll do right so God is sending him on this mission and his mission is mainly to the Jewish people to convince the Jewish people that they're going to go free and to convince Paro to let him go but he has very little to do in heaven so to speak he's not praying that uh, somehow uh, heaven should change the decree and the uh, exodus occurs 
and the Jewish people leave, but now they're trapped at the great Yam Suf by the sea. So now the Jewish people pray. They got Paro in back, they got the desert in front, they got the sea. So they pray to God. And God says, Mati Tzakeli, why are you praying? It's not the time for prayer. Rashi says, it's not the time now to pray. Dabra B'nai Yisrael V'Yisrael, now is the time for action. We have to do. So here's another concept. That sometimes... So to speak, prayer is an excuse for not doing anything. I don't have to help myself, I just have to pray. I don't have to go out and work, I just sit in my in the synagogue and recite the Ilim all day and God will send me money. So that is a false concept. That concept is wrong. What are you praying to me for? You can do something for yourself. The famous uh, maxim of God helps those that help themselves. So there's a balance here. Uh, the Chazonish, in uh, one of his works, uh, describes uh, that uh, greatness in Torah oftentimes comes through prayer and through uh, heavenly intervention, so to speak. In other words, the person was not a genius, but the person was so devoted to Torah study and so applied oneself that in heaven they opened up the gates of wisdom to him and he became a great Torah scholar even though he had uh, limited intellectual ability so the Chazonish says there that only applies he says if the person has exhausted himself 100% on his own then heaven can intervene but if the person has not exhausted himself, so then heaven does not intervene. Because what a person can do for oneself, one has to do for oneself. So there's a balance, as everything else in Judaism, there's a balance here in life between, so to speak, relying on heaven and relying on one's own abilities and efforts. So by Yamsuf, the uh, was not interested to hear their prayers because he wants, let's see, test the waters, so to speak. Start walking. You'll see you're walking on dry land. The Jewish people sinned with the golden calf. Golden Calf is a retreat to the paganism of the time of Avraham. 
It's a result of hundreds of years of living in Egyptian society, of being influenced by paganism, of the inability to extract it completely from themselves. Right, to, to paraphrase the famous statement that you can take the Jews out of Egypt, but you can't take all of Egypt out of the Jews. So they commit the, the cardinal sin of the golden calf, for which they are in heaven judged to be eliminated. God says to Moshe, Leave me alone, I'm going to destroy them. They are the wrong people. They're not cut out for the job. I'll make you, from you we'll build a new people. Now that's a pretty good offer. Because uh, there would be people who would say, God is right, this is a very bad people. You see what they do, they backsliders, rebellious, contentious. I mean, just read the Jerusalem Post. (laughs) I always said that, uh, well, I said it in New York, but I just have to adjust it. But in New York, I used to say that uh, it's one of the great uh, merciful acts of God is that he does not have a subscription to the New York Times. So here he doesn't read Haaretz. But it's tempting, right? And I'm, I'm going to build the, the chosen people from you. And Moshe turns down the offer. And Moshe says later that if you don't forgive them, if you don't want to go on with the Jewish people, erase me too. I don't. I'm part of the Jewish people. I'm not Moshe, the individual. So here's a decree of heaven. Heaven said, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to make you. And Moshe prays and he says, No. God, you're making a mistake, in effect, is what he is saying. And then he adds another idea, which is in the same consonance with the idea that Abraham said. Lomo yomru mitzrayim lemor beroho tziyom laharogo somba midbar ulechalo somba alpnei aladoma why are you allowing the non-Jewish world to say that it was a mistake that God took them out of Egypt and that his choice of the Jewish people was an error and that he's out to destroy them why should you allow that to happen will that further so to speak any concept of godliness in the world now that's a challenge to the logic of heaven, right? Because apparently heaven didn't care. What do they care? Loba But that's the power of prayer. The power of prayer is that you can turn it on end. 
You can make heaven consider what human beings consider. Even though heaven is far beyond any of those uh, facets of understanding. So we have... now prayer for the Jewish people which is a narrowness of the concept of uh, Avram who prayed for his dome before we pray for his dome we have to pray for the Jewish people there's a primacy in prayer and therefore in all of the prayers in all of the tefillot that we have, we have the tefillot regarding the Jewish people. With all of its imperfections. And in the prayer we never mention the imperfections. Because that's not what we're looking for. But we want to re-emphasize the fact that we are chosen, that we are special. And therefore, God, so to speak, you have to help us. And that concept of prayer, uh, which Moshe introduced, uh, is followed throughout uh, Jewish history from now on. So that every individual prayer is besoch sha'ar Yisrael. It's a prayer for the individual, but as part of the Jewish people. Because no individual Jew stands alone. And therefore what the relationship is to the rest of the Jewish people, in great effect, uh, influences what the relationship with him Bishoel Salanter said it uh, pithily he said whatever happens to Klal Yisrael happens to Reb Yisrael and uh, we have that concept uh, that's the entire concept in the book of Yonah that he tries to run away I'm going to be on my own I'm alone and God forces him back you're not alone and it's interesting because that's the end of the Novi there that we'll hear it on Yom Kippur is that Yonah prays that the plant the Kikayon that gave him shade that it should be revitalized because it's hot and you know it's a, it's an Israeli summer and God tells him you're praying for a plant for your own personal comfort what about all the people that are involved have you no prayer for them and therefore how do you think I look at it if I listen to your prayer and I give you what you want, how 
much more so do you think that I have to improve the lot of the many? And that is a fundamental message of the Naviona. That personal private prayer alone is wanting. But prayer where I'm part of the tzibur, so to speak, I'm part of the general community, so then that prayer has validity and resonates in heaven. And then we come to the champion of prayer, so to speak, who is King David, David HaMelech, and the Sefer Tehillim. Now the Sefer Tehillim is an expression of personal prayer unmatched in the annals of human history. It records for us every emotion. Now David also has a very troubled life. He is uh, discarded and demeaned by his brothers. He's persecuted by Shaul He has children who betray him. He himself commits an act that he should not have. All of that is reflected in the Sefer Tehillim. Every human problem, every human weakness, but every human yearning for greatness is reflected in the book of Tehillim. And that's why Jews, uh, there were what they called Tehillim Jews. Tehillim Jews meant that they recited Tehillim every day. Because if you recite Tehillim every day, you're talking about yourself one way or another. Every situation in life is there. And uh, it's given expression in the holy words of David. Chazal even said that the recitation of Tehillim is equal to the study of Torah. So there is a level of prayer that probably is the supreme level. So it's a prayer that God help me get through life. God give me the strength to overcome what life always deals to everyone. It's a prayer for help. That's a, already a different concept of prayer. You know, there was a famous uh, book written uh, by one of the uh, veterans of the Six Day War. I read it in Hebrew. Uh, this uh, man, I forget his name, unfortunately, uh, but he became a Balchuva after the war. He was a secular Jew, a soldier. He fought here on Ammunition Hill, the terrible battle against the Jordanian Legion, when uh, a few hundred Israeli soldiers were killed. But it was the decisive battle here that that forced the Jordanians to abandon uh, Jerusalem and the, and the West Bank. 
So he writes about his experience in the war, and he's a secular Israeli, knows nothing, knows absolutely nothing. And he writes that he and his unit were pinned down by Jordanian machine gun fire. And he says people all around him are being hit, wounded, and killed. And he said, I was all of a sudden overcome by a tremendous desire to pray because I wanted to survive. And I realized that I do not know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to orient myself to pray. J.M. and the A.M., uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, topic of tefillah in the Tshuva Tefillah Tzedakah three-part series entitled The Road to Repentance. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, today is the uh, 24th day of July. Happy birthday, Yaakov Arbach. Today is the sixth day in the month of Menachem Av as we get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, which begins on Wednesday night. Earlier I read that uh, beautiful letter we got concerning a special birthday message to the best Ima Schwiger and Bubs that ever was on her special birthday day. We are so privileged to be able to learn from your ways and follow in the path that you and Abba Allah Shalom have set us on. Our children and grandchildren are fortunate to have a bubby that's always available no matter what. And that has a special relationship with each one of them. Baruch who grant you many more happy, healthy, and nachas-filled and nachos-filled years to enjoy with your beautiful family. Admeyeva Estrim Shana, love always. Your biggest fans, Shoshana, Sarah, and Sippy. And of course, that is meant for listeners, Sina, who apparently is celebrating a birthday today. How do you like that? Happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. Uh, so we mentioned that um, Tisha B'Av begins on Wednesday night. Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Today's lecture, part of a great series, well worth it, as we get closer to Elul and to um, the Yom Arayim, the high holidays. In Israel, it's, uh, well, it's... <laughs> It's election day, <laughs> at least in the Knesset, it's election day in Israel. Uh, they're voting on the uh, reasonableness clause, that which will give the um, Supreme Court in Israel a little less power than they have now. will give the executive and legislative branch a little bit more power than they have now. That's been the core of these demonstrations, protests, um, debates that have been going on. And it's no, uh, it's no secret that this has been quite a divisive topic in the state of Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu is out of the hospital. He's got his pacemaker in, and he's in the Knesset. The session they're in now includes 140 votes, five of which will be done by name or are being done as we speak. Opposition members have pledged to boycott the final vote. Um, they're getting close to the final vote. There was a last-ditch compromise attempt that uh, failed. So that's not uh, going to be a reality. 
And there's a talk about major strikes in Israel tomorrow in response to what's happening today in the Knesset. We'll see what happens. We have to remember who really runs this world. And uh, Baruch Hashem, we are ultimately not dependent on (laughs) politicians of any type for our ultimate uh, destiny, because if we were, we'd be in very big trouble. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world web, and AlchemSegal.com, and the AlchemSegal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. That probably is the supreme level. So, it's a prayer... Let God help me get through life. God, give me the strength to overcome what life always deals to everyone. It's a prayer for help. That's already a different concept of prayer. There was a famous uh, book written... uh, by one of the uh, veterans of the Six-Day War. I read it in Hebrew. Uh, this uh, man, I forget his name, unfortunately, uh, but he became a Balchuva after the war. He was a secular Jew, a soldier. He fought here on Ammunition Hill, the terrible battle against the Jordanian Legion, when uh, a few hundred... Uh, Israeli soldiers were killed. But it was the decisive battle here that, that forced the Jordanians to abandon uh, Jerusalem and the, and the West Bank. So he writes about his experience in the war. And he's a secular Israeli, knows nothing, knows absolutely nothing. And he writes that he and his unit were pinned down by Jordanian machine gun fire. And he says people all around him are being hit, wounded, and killed. And he said, I was all of a sudden overcome by a tremendous desire to pray because I wanted to survive. And I realized that I do not know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to orient myself to pray. And he said, I resolved then that if somehow I got out of this mess, I would learn how to pray. And that was the first thing that he did after the war. He didn't go to yeshiva to learn Talmud. But rather he attached himself to uh, what we would say is an ordinary Jew. He didn't go to a great rabbi. And he asked the great, the ordinary Jew to teach him how to pray. And the Jew taught him Siddur. And that began his journey. He describes it. It's a terrible feeling that when you want to pray and you don't know how to pray. 
do we overcome that? So Dovid Amelech gave us uh, the necessary help. The book of Tehillim, if you don't know what to pray, take out the book of Tehillim and recite two, three, four, five chapters. And you will be overcome already with the feeling of prayer. And that prayer influences heaven. That prayer can change things. So when we say that we are speaking about that kind of prayer. Personal prayer. And there's one other caveat to this. Chazal say that it says, God spoke to Moshe in the desert of Sinai. So the commentators say, well, we know that we were in the desert of Sinai for 40 years. Why did it say all of a sudden that he's in the desert of Sinai? So the Gemara says, Ain Torah the Torah inside of a person, meaning the spiritual greatness of a person, is not established. Unless he makes himself like a desert. What does it mean he makes himself like a desert? Well, the uh, awesome thing about a desert is that there's no help there. There's no water, there's no vegetation, there's no protection from the heat or from the scorpions. You are alone. So if you want to pray to God, you have to have that feeling. I did what I can. I tried my best. I need you. You have to help me. I'm stuck here in the desert. And I have to be able, therefore, to receive your help. If a person truly feels that way, not just uh, the problem that we have with prayer is that we do it three times a day and it's rote and therefore it's hard to summon up any true emotions except on the occasions of terrible need person God forbid member of the family is not well person is on the verge of losing everything so then then the emotion is there but most of the time you know Tuesday night I dive my goodbye what do you want from me but if a person is able somehow to transform this concept of prayer so then heaven so to speak is willing to listen and therefore that's the apostle that we say in Ledovit Hashem Ori Viyishi that we recite now in the month of Elul until after Sukkot till after Hashanah Rabbah Kiyovi Viyimi Azavuni my father and mother are gone 
as long as my father and mother are here and somebody cares about me. And no matter what the age is, I know I had my father for you know, almost 75 years. So I was always the little boy. But I knew he cared about me, right? He would call every day to find out how you're doing. And you always had the feeling that if you really ran into trouble, you had a door that you could knock on. But David says, now, my father and mother have forsaken me. And therefore I have only you left, Hashem Yasfeni. I have only you that are left. And that's for that is my level of prayer to you. That you're the final address. You're the last resort that I can appeal to. So on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, so it could be that the judgment is marked down, and it may not be as beneficial as we want it to be. But we can ask God to change it. We can ask God to improve on it. You know the old uh, Jewish joke about the uh, the mother whose child uh, was swept away by a wave into the sea and the lifeguard uh, through uh, tremendously strenuous effort was able to swim out and save the child and bring him to shore and present him to the mother and the mother said he had a hat (laughs) well that's how we are too right so we say to somebody, but I had a hat too, right? But this idea that I can appeal, I can change the direction, I can influence. So naturally I have to do everything in my power. But after all is said and done, I'm only human. But you, God, are above everything. So you can help me. And you can help the Jewish people, and you can help the Jewish state, and you can help the world. It's within your capacity. And that, I think, is the idea of tefillah that we remark upon, the Mavir Nesroa Thank you all for coming. Next week. J.M. and the A.M. are by Barrel Wine. The series is entitled The Road to Repentance. We've done Shuva, Tefillah, and we'll do as much of his lecture on Stucca as we can coming up in just a moment here at J.M. and the A.M. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. Rabbi... Excuse me, sometimes you have to sneeze. RabbiWine.com, uh, RabbiWEIN.com for information. Hour number three, JM and AM on this Monday, the 24th day in the month of July, day number six in the month of Menachemov. Happy birthday to listener Yaakov. 
Yaakov Arbach is celebrating a birthday. Happy birthday to listener Sina. Listener Sina is celebrating a birthday today, as we learned earlier from her children. Mazal Tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. We're in the midst of the nine days in our nine days format. Wednesday night is Tisha B'Av. Thursday, of course, is Tisha B'Av. And Friday is Erev Shabbos Nachamu. We'll get back to our regular schedule. Sunday, we're going to be broadcasting from Camp Hask, which means that on Monday morning, you'll be hearing that three-hour presentation. This coming Monday, the Camp Hask Experience featuring Joey Newcomb, Baruch Levine, and so much more is happening this coming Sunday up at camp. Those of you who've never visited Camp Hask before, I've never seen the magic of Camp Hask. Seriously consider coming up Sunday to Parksville, New York, starting at 10 a.m. Um, this coming Tisha B'Av, it's the 46th Annual Mincha and Speakers Program, is brought to you by... Uh, as brought to you by uh, Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns. This year, it'll be a virtual Tisha B'Av service. Um, everybody can zoom in from anywhere around the world. At 145, there'll be Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. And at 245, a very prominent list of speakers. Anybody who'd like the Zoom meeting ID or the dial-in information, you could either email me, nachum and nachumsegel.com. You could be in touch with Glenn Richter at 212 Six six three five seven eight four two one two six six three five seven eight four. Many of us are familiar with what's happening right now in Israel. The protests continue. The vote in the Knesset continues. It is uh, a tense situation. I think that would be an accurate way of putting it. Uh, coming up at um, nine o'clock, right after JM and the AM, we'll turn our attention to Meir Me Lim. Rabbi Benji Kramer on the word churban, uh, charav, churban, cherev. He'll discuss all of that coming up at 9 o'clock Eastern time during Meir Milim right here at JM in the AM. Um, all right, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of tzedakah, tshuva, tefillah, and now tzedakah at JM in the AM. Everyone, on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we recite Tshuva, Trilod, Zdoka, Mavir, Nisroa, Gzeira. So, uh, in a limited fashion, I discussed with you Tshuva and Tfilo. So, tonight we're going to discuss Zdoka. Just as uh, I attempted to do with uh, Tshuva and Tfilo, to try and impress upon uh, our understanding that we're not talking simply about the translation of the word, but that it is a mindset, it's an attitude in life that the Torah that Chazal attempted to invest within us and that to see things in their simplistic view many times does not allow us to really appreciate the grandeur of what the Torah wants us to view and to be. So that's true in Zdoka as well. Now Zdoka in its popular form means giving charity. But that's not what the word means. And that's not exactly what Chazal had in mind when they spoke about Zdoka, Mavir Nesroa, Gzeira. 
Tzedakah, the root of the word is Tzedek, which we find in the Torah to mean righteous behavior. What is righteous behavior? It means a fair balance without prejudgments. And we find that by uh, the appointment of judges. The Torah says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdov. You should pursue Tzedek, righteousness. But what do we mean when we say that as far as legalities and judges are concerned? We mean that we don't want the judge to be prejudiced. We don't want him to be biased. We don't want him to have preconceived notions. So tzedek literally means straight and narrow. And uh, that word is used often in Chazal and in our prayers, but not in the terms of charity. We think of tzedakah as charity. Charity means I'm under no obligation, but out of the goodness of my heart and the thickness of my wallet, I uh, do something. I contribute, I help the poor, I support institutions, I do whatever I do. That's our understanding of tzedakah. But again, that is not what the word means. So, for instance, Moshe Rabbeinu says, We're going to hear this on the Yom Minoroyim as well. It is to us a Hashem, that we will observe the mitzvahs that the Rabboni Shalom gave us. What kind of tzedakah is that? How does the word fit there? Or we say in our prayers three times a day in the Amidah, Melech Ohev Tzdoko Mishpat. That he loves Tzdoko Mishpat. So there also is not charity. So the concept of Tzdoko in its fullest sense means that a person has an attitude towards life that is open that is tolerant, that is fair, that doesn't prejudge things. So how did Zdoka morph into charity? How did it become only a question of money? You know, there's, uh, uh, in, in most Mahzorim, really in the, uh, the old European Mahzorim, I don't know if it, it exists anymore today in the new modern Mazorim. But they had, uh, on top of the word tshuva, they had the word tzom, meaning fasting. That was tshuva. And on top of tfila, they had the word kol, meaning that your voice is raised in supplication. And on top of zdoka, they had momun, money which is again in popular thought that when we talk about tzedakah 
we're talking about giving money money that is mine and I give it either to an individual or to an organization for a good cause so Zdoka became philanthropy but Zdoka really requires a different attitude which we I hope we'll see applies to donations and to money as well now in the Torah it says Ephes ki lo there will come a time when there will be no poor people and then it says a little later on ki lo yechdal evyon there never will be a time when there won't be poor people in the land so uh, let the Torah make up its mind either there won't be poor people or there will be poor people so on this uh, a great deal of ink has been spilled many many interpretations because the Torah is aware of the contradiction itself the Talmud discusses it but one of the uh, ideas that's involved here is Chazal say ain't oni elamidas a poor person poverty is a state of mind it's not only a state of pocket there are people who are very wealthy who are poor Uh, that's the source of miserliness it's the source of uh, the fact that in the words of the Talmud there are people whose money is more important to them than their own lives and we say that also on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur person brings his bread at the risk of his life every day we hear unfortunately tragically in Israel uh, accidents in the construction industry today someone got killed in Haifa he risked his life for what? for a hundred shekel but that's our nature that's because a hundred shekel is more important it's necessary so the Torah says there can come a time when people don't consider themselves poor nobody will say I'm poor he could say uh uh, you know, I have this and this, uh, which is not as much as you have, but I'm not poor. And but there will always be a time when, relatively speaking, people will, uh, some people will have more than others. And if somebody has more than I have, then automatically I consider myself poor. And if you think that way, then all of life is really a race on a treadmill where you never get anywhere because there will always be someone ahead of you 
And that's what Chazal meant when they said, Mi mona He who has a hundred wants two hundred. So if you have a hundred million, you want two hundred million. If you have a billions, you want billions more. That's our nature. So the Torah wanted to temper that. Now the Torah does not preach poverty. That's not one of the attributes that a person should ascribe to. That is a non-Jewish idea, a Christian idea. There's so many Christian ideas that have infected us because we have lived for uh, almost 2,000 years in Christian society. And therefore, a lot of the values that we think that we have that are Jewish are not really. So the Gemara says, Oni Choshev Kemes. Poverty is not a good thing. And we should not encourage it. Even though we see entire sections of Jewish society that made out of poverty a virtue. The Torah wanted us to look at things fairly, objectively, logically, to have an appreciation of what the Torah wants from us. And that's the idea of tzdok, the balance in life. And therefore, we find in the Talmud that the rabbis placed a limit on philanthropy. The Gemara says, I'm a vazvez, al yavazvez yosem A person that wants to give away a lot of money, he's not allowed to give away more than 20%. The discussion whether it's 20% of income or 20% of assets. You know, the old uh, joke uh, about the, uh, that after the Yom Kippur War, they made a special appeal for the United Jewish Appeal in uh, Florida. And uh, the uh, person making the appeal for funds said, last year, I'm going to call out the names and last year you gave X amount, and this year I would want you to double it. So he called out, you know, Mr. Goldberg, 100,000. Goldberg says 200,000. He calls out Greenberg, 50,000. He says 100,000. So he calls out another man, and he says, last year you gave 100,000. So the man says... 100,000. He says, but last year you gave 100,000. He says, this year it's from assets. <laughs> Which is, if you think of it, is a different type of giving. I remember a very wealthy Jew in Florida. I went to visit him with the Ponovizhorov. He was a big supporter of Torah. He was a wonderful Jew. He had a big company and he sold it. And he sold it for $50, 70000000 million when that was money then. We're talking 50 years ago. 
and we went to see him that he should uh, I remember the Rav wanted him to buy a room for $5,000 in the orphanage to dedicate a room so he said to him Rebbe I can't do it I'm unemployed (laughs) and he really felt that he was unemployed because the 50, 70 million that he got you know that's that's put away but he's got nothing coming in so that is the mentality of it and it based on that mentality the Torah said listen you want to be a philanthropist there's a limit to it there's a balance to everything so I'm a vazvez I'm a vazvez let him not give more than 20% there's a balance on the bottom there's a limit on the bottom 10% Aser to Aser so between 10 and 20% those are the limits because that gives you a fairness Chazal say the person has to be careful that one should never become a burden on the community or on the society in our world we phrase it not to be a burden on our children and we say that uh, in Amazon let us never come that we have to accept from human beings so the Torah valued financial independence and it valued it so much that it placed a limit because there are people who are such good people that they literally would give everything away and there are great stories about the Hasidic Rebbeim and other holy people who literally gave everything away but uh, whether or not uh, that is really what the Torah wants is really is very debatable nevertheless the Torah warns us that we should not close our hands now all of this is a mental picture because there are people who are extremely generous and write the check but they're really closing their hands they resent giving they resent the poor person they feel they're being taken advantage of which is human who has not felt at one point in life that someone was taking advantage of him or her so uh, the Torah warns us about that the Torah says these are the limits but don't don't let it affect your mind don't let it close your mind because we're not just talking about closing your hand or your fist again if I recall uh, another incident that I had with the great Bonavision there was a Jew in Miami that was uh, well well known to be uh, a miser impossible to get 
a donation from it. In fact, after a while, he prided himself on it. It was like uh, his sport was that people would come and ask, and he would uh, he would have the ability and the temerity to say no, 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 no. But uh, the road was different. Uh, it was very hard to say no to him, and because of his nature. So I remember that we went, and that I, I was astounded that uh, the Rav asked him for a certain amount, and he said, okay, Rebbe, I'm going to give it to you. And he took out his checkbook, and he wrote out the check, and he could not sign his name. Physically, he could not sign his name. So the Rav went over to him and leaned over his shoulder, and shouted in his ear, sign it. And he was so shocked that he signed it. When we left, so the Rav said, maybe we should go to the bank and certify the check. (laughs) Because again, that's our nature. So there are people who have a nature that they are generous to the extreme. And there are people who have a nature that they are selfish to the extreme. So the Torah set up limits that apply to everybody. You can be selfish, but 10% you have to give. You can be generous, but not over 20%. Because then you'll become a burden on the community. There'll be family problems, oh, etc. I need not tell you how many court cases are involved where uh, people have left in their will amounts of money to uh, charity and the will has been contested by relatives. Just as an aside... Uh, the rule in such cases is that whatever you do, do in your lifetime. Because uh, unfortunately, dead is dead. And people who uh, think that they will be able to control the fortunes of others or even of their own assets after they're gone and many times make a tragic error. It doesn't happen that way. So the Torah set these limits. But the Torah added these ideas to it. Not to close your hand. What does it mean not to close your hand? You're going to give the poor man a donation. But you're not going to do it nicely. You're going to do the resentment. And he will sense the resentment. Or you'll do it with an insult. I knew a Jew in Chicago who was extremely charitable, but he was extremely irritable. Sometimes it goes together. And uh, when people came to visit him, he would lose his temper, he would become angry, he would shout. At the end, he would give. 
So the professional fundraiser said, you know, first we got to get him angry and then, then we'll do good. So they baited him almost so that he should be angry. But uh, that uh, really doesn't, uh, doesn't fulfill the idea that the Torah had. So there's a way of treating those that need our benefit. Now, in our world, most of our charity goes to institutions. Go to schools, go to synagogues, I hope, to uh, hospitals, to organizations that help people. But except for in the morning minion, for the small change that we give out, we very rarely deal with individuals. In the Torah, that does not exist. Institutions do not exist. In the entire Talmud, you will not find one case where yeshiva asked for money or people donated to a yeshiva. You will find only cases of individuals. The Rambam and Ilchus Zdokah and the laws of Zdokah emphasize that point. That Zdokah in its highest form is person to person, individual to individual. It's to help a certain person in a certain situation. And therefore we find that there were such concepts as, for instance, Achnosas Kala, to help contribute the cost of a wedding so that the Kala would have a nice wedding. So that's mentioned in the uh, in all of the fortune we mention it in the Brisa that we recite. This is something that you have a reward for in this world, and the principal reward is yet reserved and present and full in the world to come. And one of them is Achnosas Kala. That's the only one, by the way, that deals with monetary matters. The other things are uh, actions that a person has. Bikur Cholim, Chasesholim Alvoyas these types of social kindnesses. But here we're talking about money. But that's money for an individual. So the Rambam says that that is what a person should concentrate on. Now that doesn't work in our world. But that the highest form of charity, one of the highest, not the highest, the highest is to put the poor person in a position where that person can make a living. That's the highest form. Pay for someone's tuition. Pay for someone's job training. Give someone a job. That's the highest form of charity.
but uh, that form of charity uh, uh, pretty much uh, goes unrecognized, right? And unless you, the worker will put up a plaque in his house and say, you know, Rabbi Wine gave me money to go to the college. But that is the highest form. But the other high forms are individual to individual. They give a poor person directly. Now the problem with many poor people is that they are unattractive people. They don't take a shower every day. They don't dress nicely. And many times they are rude. So it's hard to be nice to them. It's very difficult to be able to relate to them because of that. Yet the Rambam emphasizes that. We have the famous piece in the Rambam that uh, he says on Purim that instead of investing our wealth in Mishloach Monos, uh, we should invest it in Matonos Levionim. Or he says, uh, instead of investing our wealth on the holidays in semi-frivolous things, uh, we should uh, give charity to the poor, give money to the poor so that they can also have a holiday. So it's an attitude of individual to individual. Now, in Eastern Europe, uh, that was the way charity was given. In fact, the, the idea of supporting institutions did not arise until Reb Chaim Valozhner and the Valozhner Yeshiva in 1813. It was the first institution that went out and collected money. Now, there there was a kihila that collected taxes. And out of the taxes, they paid the rabbi, the shochet, the chazan, whoever it was. But that was taxes. That wasn't considered charity. Charity was what you did with an individual. So again, the problem with an individual is that he's an individual and he's not necessarily an appealing person and therefore there are enormous psychological hurdles that have to be overcome I want you to know I'm not speaking to you I'm speaking to me I'm just saying it out loud I want you to get the impression that you that the most charitable person in the world is addressing you Maybe the second most, but certainly not. <laughs> so the Gemara says another idea, a famous idea. The Gemara discusses why uh, did we not honor? It's not a. Uh, we're learning it in the uh, Shir on Rosh Hashanah, Gemara Rosh Hashanah, but it's here in Sanhedrin. 
But why did we not honor the king Darius II, Doryovesh Hashemi, who was really Koresh, who after all gave us uh, the right to go back there to Israel after the first Churban? Uh, and not only that, it is reported for us in the book of Ezra. Ezra Nehemiah is one book, Ezra. Uh, that he gave a great deal of money and goods and animals and sent people to help build the base of Migdash. So why, right? I mean, we, uh, we named the streets after Truman. or anyone else that helped us and uh, here uh, good old Yovish is uh, not even counted as being a good and righteous person just as an aside there's an opinion in Tosfas that this Yovish was actually a Jew he was the son of Queen Esther and King Achishverj but he is not Zoharoso Ish Latov. He's not remembered by us for good things. So I think there is a street Koresh here in Yerushalayim. But I don't think there's a street Deryovish. Anyhow, that's a different lecture series. So the Gemara says, the Gemara raises the question why. Uh, why do we uh, give him uh, greater due? So the Gemara says because of the fact that he had ulterior motives when he gave. He really didn't mean it, so to speak, for the sake of giving, for the sake of the temple. He had ulterior motives, which all politicians have and all leaders have. When they do a good thing, they do a good thing. And God will reward them for doing the good thing. But that doesn't make them a righteous person. That doesn't free them from the bias that exists within all people. The ulterior motives that we all have, that sometimes we don't even recognize, but that exist within us. So the Gemara asks, well, that's a violation of another thing that we learned in the Gemara. Because the Gemara says, Anosin Sela Lidzdoka, if a man gives a coin, now Sela is a substantial coin, but the Gemara means any coin. He gives a coin to charity, Almanas Sheyichyebni, conditionally. Unfortunately, his son needs medical help. He needs to be healed. So he's, he makes a deal with God. I'm going to give X amount to charity. And we're saying he's bribing God, right? I'm going to give X amount to charity. And you, in recognition of my generosity, will heal my child. So the Gemara there says, That's perfectly acceptable. It's a righteous person. So the Gemara says, So what do we what happened with Doryovish? 
Here a man explicitly has an ulterior motive. He openly says, I'm giving Amanash Yechiebni. And the Yovish never said what his ulterior motive was. This the Gemara, the rabbis figured out that he had an ulterior motive. And they ascribed it to him. So Rashi there says a remarkable thing. Rashi says it as a litmus paper test of what it is to be a Jew. He says a Jew, even if he gives charity with a condition that he wants something from God. If the condition is not fulfilled, if God forbid the child does not recover, he doesn't regret having given to charity. He doesn't regret having done a good thing. J.M. in the A.M. with Harry Barrel Wine, his brilliant series on the repentance and the um, third one, Stucca, rounds out the Tfila, Tshuva, Tshuva, Tfila, and Stucca of those three um, uh, of those three lectures and of that series. Information about Rabbi Wine's uh, lecture series, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, Rabbi W-E-I-N. Dot com for information and um, just phenomenal lectures not that he needs my <laughs> my uh, approbation but you understand that his uh, spoken word lectures his format has been our uh, the key to our nine days format for a long long time and uh, his uh, ability to explain to people of all backgrounds uh, episodes of Jewish history and uh, different um, things about our tradition is pretty amazing. Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, the reasonableness bill has passed in the Knesset. The uh, reasonableness bill has passed in the Knesset. That essentially, just to sum it up, without any, without any partisan politics in this summation, uh, essentially they've passed a bill... Uh, that will um, create uh, a law or adjust a law uh, which will limit to some degree the abilities of the judiciary as compared to the legislative branch of government. So the judiciary has a little bit less power now. That's a whole judicial reform uh, topic. So they've got a little bit less uh, influence, a little bit less authority, and the legislative has a little bit more authority if, in fact, this law is enacted based on this vote, which I'm assuming it will. The reasonableness standard bill passed 64 to nothing into Israeli law. The opposition members pledged to boycott the final vote, so they did. They boycotted the final vote. So it passed essentially 64 to nothing, and now we'll see what happens. After many, many days of protests, demonstrations, um... After many, many days of uh, taking to the streets and seeing both sides being very energized and very much on point, it'll be interesting to see what happens now that this has passed. Um, There were some compromise efforts at the very end. 
none of them worked out. Uh, there was a compromise effort to delay the start of the Bills' um, of the Bills' uh, effectiveness of the Bills' authority to delay it until next calendar year. There was a uh, there was a compromise attempt to postpone the vote again, things like that. But none of those efforts worked. The reasonableness bill has passed. The opposition has boycotted the final vote. And um, the standard reasonableness bill has passed 64 to nothing officially into Israeli law. And uh, that's where we stand right now. A lot of protests, a lot of uh, debate in public, certainly much debate in private. And um, this is where we stand right now. During these nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av on Wednesday night and Thursday, Friday will be Arab Shabbos Nachamu. We'll be here with our regular format. Tomorrow back with our spoken word nine days format with our A wine between six and nine AM. Mayor Me Lim, Rabbi Benji Kramer is going to analyze Khurban Cherev. Um that'll be coming up next right after JM Nam. Mayor Me Lim with Rabbi Benji Kramer. He'll be analyzing Khurban as we get set to observe the uh, anniversary of the Chorban Batea Mikdash, the destruction of our holy temples, coming up on Tisha B'Av. So a very, very interesting day, to say the least. Very interesting day. And uh, for those of us who pray for unity among our people, who pray for all sides, in Israel especially, to get along and move forward, there's much to pray for at this time. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, we're at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network. And of course, any beloved NSN app. And that will wrap things up for a Monday, nine days format, JM in the AM. May Yermi Lim with our Benji Kramer is next. Tomorrow morning we're back. We're starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.